We are starting a new series uh, in the book of Matthew, but uh, it's also Advent. I think a, a bit of a dangerous season. Um, there can be a lot of talk of the reason for the season. Let's keep Christ in Christmas, right? And it's a season that's busy. It's full of spending, eating, uh, full calendars, shopping, running from place to place. It's often chaotic for, for many of us. And looking at it all, it's like a fair question. If we were to like to assess this past week, assess the next few weeks, like how much of our lives are actually telling the reason for the season? And how much of who we are and how we live out Advent is really telling about what Jesus cared about? Like the Prince of Peace. And I don't know how much peace we often have at this time of year. And Christmas itself, it just could be very heavy uh, for so many. I think there's a, a bit of loneliness that many people experience during Advent. I think there's people celebrating Christmas this year for the first time without a family member that either passed away or is gone. Maybe, maybe estrangement from certain relatives or parents or children, whatever it may be. And some of you are just coming in here, and it's just, you're, you're actually feeling like you just want to rush through the season. You just want to get it over with. Christmas time just carries with it a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. Or maybe you feel like 2022 just hasn't been your year, or this season of life is just not your season, and you're ready to move to 2023. And it could feel like walking in darkness. And it can feel like you feel a bit lost or aimless, or unsure, or uncertain. Maybe you feel like God is distant at this moment. You've certainly felt God closer in the past, but it just feels dark. And there's very little comfort and hope. All the words we love to use at Christmas time. And there's a longing, longing for answers longing for meaning or purpose to it all, a longing for broken things to be fixed, a longing for wrongs to be set right, a longing for renewal, a longing for dead things to come to life, just a longing. And then I would argue that Advent is for you. It's the season for that very longing and the way that God ultimately answers the deepest longing for us all. And so we wanted to start the series kind of tied into Advent, since Matthew himself writes some kind of Christmas text for us, uh, it made sense. But I, I want to, as we do, uh, I'm still always going to preach a bit academically, I want us to do the work of also the background of Matthew. Um, part of how I view preaching is also teaching y'all how to read your Bibles well. Um, and so uh, the context of Matthew, understanding who is Matthew, and, and we'll deal with verses 1 through 17 today, but let's, let's make sure we, we start where it should. And so um, Matthew comes in after a pretty long period of silence for the Israelites. Not that they didn't have plenty going on. Uh, they, they certainly did, and, and that's what I want to talk about uh, right now, but um, it, it was without a, a prophet in a traditional sense. It had felt for them that God had been silent. God had performed some actions. I mean, that's why they have Hanukkah. Uh, it's a certainly a, a part of their history where they would say God showed up uh, as we kind of kicked out the Greeks. But um, 
you, you have a whole lot of people that show up on the scene. And as Protestants, we um, kind of skip from, the, from Malachi to, to Matthew. And there's suddenly a whole lot of characters introduced in the book of Matthew. And we don't, we're just kind of plopped into the scene. And so uh, there's a lot of history that happens between the Persians kind of taking over things and suddenly the Romans showing up on the scene. And so who are some of the people groups? So I'm going to be a little more interactive as we kind of walk through a text like this. Who are some of the people groups we start being introduced to in the Gospels from, from what you guys can remember? Who are the groups that are in charge? Who are the groups in power? Who are the groups that, are, that Jesus is interacting with? Sadducees. Okay, cool. Who else? Pharisees, the Romans, certainly. What was that? Samaritans. I heard Americans. I'm like, might not be the most accurate reading. Uh, no, Samaritans. Totally fine. Uh, yeah. That's, that's how some people read Revelation, but it's probably not correct. Uh, what else? Yeah, so Greek, Greek culture particularly, Hellenism is on the scene. Who's, who's kind of king in Israel at the time? Herod, who's not even a Jew, um, is in charge. And so, um, yeah, who else? Uh, there's at least one disciple of Jesus who gets an adjective. Um, he's, he's kind of um, a little more violent. Yeah, we have the zealots. Um, and then there's a whole group of people out in the desert who even don't even get an uh, identification uh, in, in the New Testament, though I think John the Baptist might be one of them. Uh, and there's a whole group called the Essenes who are kind of where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from. And so you have these people groups. And at some point, uh, I think during the Babylonian captivity, this is sort of the rise of um, what are all the, the worship spots uh, for people to go and learn teaching week in and week out? Synagogues, yes. And so um, prior to the Babylonian captivity, you went to temple. Temple is where like, you had families, and temple for all the seasons is where you would get sort of the, the reminders of what was true about God. The synagogue system really started during the captivity uh, time because there were a whole lot of people going, how did we get here? Um, what went wrong? And they started going, we, we have to know our, our scriptures. We have to know our texts. Uh, because we've disobeyed what God has told us to do. And that's how we ended up in captivity. And so uh, they started synagogue systems because there was no temple anymore. And they wanted to make sure that they were starting to learn what was true. And so the, the formation of synagogues, the formation in some ways of, of sort of a rabbinic system uh, started then too. So you had sort of formal teachers within those systems. And at some point, uh, who takes over the Persians? Who knows our history? Even the movie 300 kind of reflects this. Who defeats the Persians? Greeks, yeah. Eventually the Greeks uh, kind of come and wipe out the Persians. And they bring with them uh, the wonderful culture of Hellenism. Uh, Hellenism, uh, along with Alexander the Great, and hear me, this is a super simplified understanding of history. Uh, Hellenism, along with Alexander the Great, um, was a very uh, people-focused understanding of the world. The man is the measure of all things. There's a great philosophical statement about it. Uh, They brought with them entertainment. Uh, they brought with them uh, sport, uh, so the, the entertainment world. They brought with them uh, academics and libraries and study. Uh, education was a big part of it. Uh, they brought with them uh, beauty and um, uh, extravagance uh, that hadn't been seen quite as much in particularly the Middle Eastern world. Um, comfort was a big deal. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of ways. We might be more Hellenistic than we can imagine. And... Uh, 
And if you're an ancient Jew interacting with the world, this created some challenge of how much do we want to be like the Greeks now that they have shown up to town and taken over things. And at times they warred against the Hellenists um, or the Greeks at the time. Uh, So actually the the whole Hanukkah story is the Maccabees fighting against uh, and and the temple destruction and uh, sort of these these fights between the Greeks and the Jews. Um, And there were plenty of Jewish people who didn't want nothing to do with the Greeks. Uh, But Hellenism was powerful. And even as Rome kind of eventually came to town, which is pre-Jesus' time, Hellenism was still the cultural choice of Romans, of Greeks, of a number of Jews. But it kept going with, what, what do we do with Romans? And what do we do about Hellenism? And there were those who positioned themselves with power. So the Sadducees are a group of priests who became buddy-buddy with Greek and Roman culture to say, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll not stir the pot too much if you let us stay in power. And uh, they almost were a bit mafia-ish in how they approached the world. So the Sadducees were a pretty rough bunch of leaders. Uh, They were all priests. They were all part of the Levites. Um, But no, they weren't all Levites. The Essenes were the Levites who go, we want nothing to do with that. We think Jerusalem's corrupt. And they go out to the desert to just be faithful, uh, sort of removed from the culture at large. And as Israel continued to get settled in the Roman and Greek world, Uh, the North became a bit of like the hotbed for education. So if you wanted to go to the Harvard of uh, studying the Torah, uh, you went to places like Capernaum. You went to places in the Galilee. Uh, This was where uh, the Pharisaic world lived, and the Pharisees were the experts. They were the ones who studied the law more than anybody else. And their heart was simply to go, hey, we want to know the law really well because we don't want to end up disobeying again. And we want to make sure we don't end up in captivity. Now, Jesus will have some harsh words to how they interpret the Bible. Um, but at the end of the day, I think Pharisees get an, an overly, uh, overly critiqued um, about who they are and why they are. Um, and, and we'll talk about that certainly as Jesus goes. Uh, and, then, um, and then you sort of get the Herod uh, crowd. Um, so you get Herod's followers. Herod was an Edomite. He's not even a Jew um, from the next door neighbor. But Herod probably is one of the richest people in history. Uh, he controlled so much trade through the area. Um, and so he built uh, the temple wall and uh, the second temple for, for a lot of reasons. I mean, it was built with Nehemiah and Ezra and all. But uh, Herod would come around and make it extravagant. Um, he did engineering feats that people still don't know how he actually did it. Uh, and um, he had a lot of money. He buddy-buddied up to Rome. Rome let him kind of keep his power uh, in doing so. And so um, Rome let him kind of be in charge. And he was smart. He spent a lot of money on Jewish things to keep the Jews happy. Uh, and so um, that was sort of his practice. But he was also heavily neurotic. Uh, he always sort of, he built palaces a day's journey apart so that if he ever needed to flee for any reason, he could travel for a day, stay at some fortress, travel for a day, stay at his own fortress. Um, so he had this neuroticness, which we encounter in the Jesus story. All right, I think we covered a fair amount of that. Oh, and, and the question is, what do we do with Hellenism? What do we do with this culture? And so the Pharisees would be like, look, we don't give in to the culture of the Greeks. The Zealots say, we don't give in to the culture of the Greeks, and we fight it with violence. Uh, they were the group that were sort of more militant. The Essenes wanted nothing to do with a whole lot of people at the time and went out to the desert. Um, and the Sadducees, the Hellenists, the Herodians, they all were like, ah, Greek culture is fine. We can have our cake and eat it too. 
We can be Jews and follow some Jewish stuff, but we can also just live in extravagance and really comfort and we'll tile our floors and we'll have these beautiful roads and, and we're totally fine with that. And it was a bit of a cultural compromise. So I want to talk about Rome now. So Rome comes on the scene. Rome carries with it its own pomp and circumstance, its own uh, understanding of the world, its own way of speaking. Uh, so it brought Latin, uh, amongst other things, into the world. Um, and it brought the world of Caesars into the world uh, as well. And in Rome, uh, there was a, a way of writing called euangelion, which we interpret as gospel. But the, the term gospel was not new to the New Testament. It was a form of literature uh, in the Roman world of how to speak. It was often a pronouncement of um, a victory or um, a Caesar has taken the throne. This is the good news of this Caesar, this, this Caesar who's going to usher in the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So Caesar was called all sorts of things, Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Son of the Most High God. These are all terms of Caesar's before Jesus' time. And he brought peace. He brought piety, war, victory, peace. That was sort of the statement around how to get peace. It was established through power and war and fear and military victory and coercion. That is how Rome worked. And they would say by the epiphany of the birth of Caesar, the advent of Caesar, that he brought this good news, peace for all mankind. Like, this is, this is written, I'll read something that was written on stone, it still exists. It says, since divine providence has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus, whom she filled with virtues for the benefit of all mankind, bestowing on us Augustus Caesar as savior of the world. For he has put an end of war and brought perfect peace. By the epiphany of his birth, by the advent in Latin, he brought the gospel of peace to all mankind. And for that reason, the Greeks of Asia on this day have declared that New Year should begin from now on, on the 23rd of September, the day of the birth of this God. So even setting the year by a birthday of the God. Never will another gospel surpass the gospel that was announced at his birth. He is the only Lord of the empire, but Lord of all the earth and of the calendar and of time itself. And so when we encounter four books that start the New Testament for us, and they say that they are gospels, they're picking up on a way of writing, a way of speaking, a way of talking, in a way that is um, usurping the narrative, what is true. So when we call it the Gospel of Matthew, we're calling it, and it's one of his own books, it's, and it's paired with a king and a kingdom. It's no surprise that it's good news of the kingdom. That's actually often how it's put together. So Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom. That, that is, almost every gospel writer will pair good news with of the kingdom. It's a declaration of victory, of a Caesar, of a king taking his throne. And Matthew comes in to say, no, there is a different king than the, the kingdoms of this world. And it's not Herod. It's not Caesar. It's not of Rome. It's not of even Israel. There's a king over all things. And this kingdom is not of this world. And Matthew's saying, I've met this king. And I've experienced this king. Now let me tell you about it. And some basic questions. When do you think Matthew was written? Anybody? Great. You're, you're with a lot of scholarship. Uh, <laughs> which is, I don't know, 50 up to about 80. There's quite a window that people think it could possibly be written in, and that's totally fine. It's, no, it's not a big deal. Um, Matthew, at some point, was probably getting old, and it's like, 
Here's, here's my gospel. Somebody possibly write it down if it wasn't him. Where is Matthew probably located? Once again, there's probably a variety of answers. It does seem like uh, that the whom and the who is that uh, this is a predominantly Jewish book. Um, a Jewish author, maybe a little bit of Syria or Asia Minor, uh, where Jews were very prominent for a long time. And so um, it's likely in those areas. Now, why? Why is Matthew writing what he's writing? Um, as I already kind of said, it's, it's talking about this good news. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas says, to witness to God's desire to save all creation through the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, Matthew writes to make us disciples of this man, Jesus which means that we are to be transformed if we are to live in obedience to the new reality of the redeemed world. So who is this Matthew? What do we know about him? What's, yeah, he's a disciple, a disciple of Jesus. What's his profession up to following Jesus? Yeah, yeah, history has it as a tax collector, certainly. Um, what do we know about tax collectors? Yeah, people didn't really love him. Yeah, and we'll, we'll, talk about, we'll talk about how that starts even shading this genealogy in a second. Uh, and as I said, the to whom is that this is a very Jewish-oriented story. Um, the way that Matthew speaks, the way that Matthew actually even uh, employs a whole lot of Jewish ways of writing, um, the thought is that it's a Jewish book written to Jews uh, about this Jesus. So our task in reading Matthew I would say, as we kind of walk through, is it's not to understand the story of Matthew uh, just in light of our own understanding of the world, but rather Matthew would have our understanding of the world fully transformed as a result of our reading the gospel. That is what I would argue he is hoping for. To be a Christian does not mean that we are to change the world, but rather we must live as witnesses to the world that God has changed and is changing. We should not be surprised, therefore, if the way we live makes the change visible. It's almost like he finishes his gospel with, now go and make disciples of everything I've taught you. And it's like a reset button to go back to the beginning of the book and to keep going and then hit the reset button and go back to the beginning of the book. So it should not surprise us that this book will start with a genealogy as in good Jewish fashion. Uh, Matthew and Luke um, both write uh, sort of the Christmas stories as we know them. I think John has his own version of a Christmas story. It's just not what we doing peanuts um, or some other show. Um, And he's a Jew, right, into a Jewish audience with a Jewish agenda, so he's going to tell the genealogy. And if you talk to Jewish people about some of their favorite parts of the Bible, one of the things that actually comes up is the genealogies. They they find them fascinating. They find them uh, helpful. They find them interesting. It's something that we often, as probably non-Jew Western people, just kind of gloss over and just want to get through as fast as possible. And I think there's reasons why it would matter um, to, to focus on the genealogies. First is that uh, it becomes apparent that this is the story that they belong to. In the American Western world, we kind of speak of the individual. Like, you go out, you leave your parents, and you go set out on your own and go conquer the world. And, and we phrase things like, we just want to be part of something bigger. And, and we want to go set out and change the world and be a part of something big. In, in a Jewish mindset, you are a part of something bigger, and it's portrayed in the story of the people. You are one person in but a long line of people who are part of the story that God is telling in history, and that if Jesus should tarry longer, that we also would have people follow us, and we would be in line with the story that God is always telling. 
If you've ever participated in um, like a Seder or something um, or uh, with, with a Jewish people, there's also a particular way of talking as if um, genealogies also present this idea that I was there. I was there in the story. They often don't say phrases like, our ancestors left Egypt and our ancestors were at Sinai. If, if you've gone to a Passover Seder, they'll say, we left Egypt and we were at Sinai. The story, in some ways, um, it's, it's almost as if we were there as part of the story that took place. And lastly, to talk about bloodlines. We don't do this so much as people. We do this maybe with dogs or horses or something else. Um, but if we focus on belonging, what tribe you belong to in Israel, that you are a part of God's people as opposed to the Samaritans or somebody else. The genealogy was about belonging to a certain people. So with all that, let's open Matthew and see what he does. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's quite an opening. And here's something that will blow your mind. The opening of this book literally leads Biblos Genesis. Uh, it re- literally opens with the book of Genesis. Like that is actually the Greek uh, that's stated there. We miss it and it gets translated as genealogy, but it really means, it really reads as the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. And Matthew's not as heavy handed, I would argue, as John is and connecting us back to Genesis 1, but I think he does it just in that opening line to say this is the, the Genesis, this is the, the starting point about this Jesus Christ, this this person, and and perhaps a sort of new Torah, a new work of God, a new creation in some ways. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, I hope you know that at this point, but if you didn't, good. it's not his last name. It's not part of the family line of Christ. Um, Christ is a Greek transliteration of the Messiah, the Messiah, uh, from Hebrew, uh, so it's Jesus, Messiah, uh, should also be translated if we were translating straight out of Hebrew, that this anointed one, that's what Messiah means, anointed one, and uh, it was often associated with kings, and, and over history had, through the story of God's people, there was always sort of this hint at a king that would come, this Messiah, this anointed one who would one day show up in history, and so um, this, this one who would work with God in the reset of creation. And he was identified as the son of David and the son of Abraham, which would connect him absolutely to the lineage of the Jews. Now, it's a Jewish author writing a Jewish story, and so if he's writing about a Jewish Messiah, yes, just like every other Jew, he'd connect to Abraham as an ancestor, no matter what. So it's not revolutionary that he necessarily puts this out, but it does draw our eyes to two of the main covenants in Israel's history. Covenants sort of agreements between God and his people, uh, and two of them included a promise of a one-day person showing up. And two of them are, are with Abraham and with David. With David, it was a promise that he would have some sort of offspring who would be king, just like he was, but king in a way that would be a kingdom that forever lasts. It's, it's a distinct kingdom that this one will finally show up in, and it'll be a kingdom that lasts forever. 
And then in Abraham, there's one who um, he started off with the, the covenant saying, you will be a blessing. I'm going to bless you in order to bless all the nations. My, my job as God to bless all the nations, my mission to go bless all the nations and ultimately redeem them is going to be accomplished through you, Abraham. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations. And then there's a promise of a seed who would come, who would ultimately be the blessing to all people. So I think even in this opening, it's as if to say, Israel, here is your Messiah. Nations, here is your hope. And it is forever and is for everyone. It's a beautiful opening, I think, to start drawing our attention to David and Abraham. Now, I was so often told as I got to Matthew and then get to a genealogy that Matthew's whole job is to prove the Jewishness of Jesus, to prove just how Jewish Jesus is. Now, if that's the case, Matthew gets to fail. He just, this is the worst Jewish genealogy you could possibly write. Maybe, maybe you could. Uh, But if you are a heavily patriarchal culture, what would you expect to find in a genealogy where you're trying to prove a pedigree of somebody's bloodline? What would you expect to find? Yeah, a bunch of men. And a bunch of, like, keep it as simple as possible. This guy had, had this son. That son had this next son. That next son had another son. And that next son had another son. And you would keep it. There's no reason to, to veer for that. It would be a perfectly fine genealogy. It would prove that he was of the tribe of Judah. And it would prove that he's a descendant of Abraham. And he would prove all these sort of things. But let's see if that's what we find. Start of verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. They include the brothers. They don't have to, but it's also, if you're part of the 12 tribes of Israel, hey, guess what? The brothers are part of the 12 tribes. So that's not an unreasonable inclusion. And Judah, the father of Perez. Now you can stop there, and that would be reasonable. But what does he do? And Zerah by Tamar. What do we know about Tamar? Anyone? What was that? Yes. So Tamar and uh, the the way the whole relationship with Judah kind of worked. Judah had sons. Tamar was supposed to bear children, but the oldest one son died. The next one in line, who by all ethical codes is supposed to bear the children for the line to continue, uh, doesn't do that. And, t- and, and uh, Tamar basically points out the injustice that's happening to her and also then basically pretends to be a prostitute, sleeps with her father-in-law, and bears twins by this father-in-law. And it becomes this whole ex- ex- um, exposure of, of Judah's injustices, and Tamar helps expose that. It's an incredible storyline, and you're like, that sounds crazy. It is crazy. And we even think that Tamar wasn't even a Jew. And so this introduces a whole new threat to the storyline. There's no reason to include this, but Matthew does. All right, let's keep going. And Perez, and the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, like my dad says, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Who's Rahab? A Canaanite prostitute, right? If you are trying to keep the pedigree of the Jewish line, 
Why? You could simply say Boaz, the father of Obed, and then go Obed, the father of Jesse. There's no reason to include it. Right? So or, uh, I, I skipped the, the, the next person. So Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Who is Ruth? A Moabite. A Moabite widow who is not part of... This, the Moabites were so cursed that they couldn't even enter the assembly of the Lord for 10 generations. But they're included in the story here by Matthew, who does not need to. He could simply say, Boaz, the father of Obed, and Obed, the father of Jesse. That would have been totally fine. But he includes it. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Ah, at last. We got David. He's the king. It's what we expected. And in some ways, our eyes are drawn to this. There's, there's been 14 people. We'll see a gap of 14 again for the next kind of movement. And, it, and if you are a good at, at learning and studying your, your Bibles, you, these are patterns you pick up on, especially in sort of Jewish understandings of the world. And so there's kind of this gap right here. And it's like, ah, oh, this moment in history where David took over as king. It's as if to draw our eyes, say, this is a significant point in history. And David was the father of Solomon. Does it stop there? No. By the wife of Uriah. What happened there? <laughs> right? David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He ultimately sets Uriah out to basically die by putting him on the front lines of the battle. And he has a child by this woman. It's one of the dark stories as part of David's life. So what's going on? Why is Matthew including these stories? What the heck is he up to by drawing our eyes to unnecessary pieces in the genealogy of Jesus about Canaanite women and Moabite women and David's worst sin in history that he does not need to tell in order to keep the wonderful pedigree of a Jewish Messiah? Now remember, who is, who is Matthew? A tax collector. An outsider. Like, he'd be the one sitting by the lake as all of these uh, uh, fishermen come to shore. And he would be like, all right, two fish for Caesar, one fish for me, one fish for you. One fish for Caesar, one fish for me, one fish for you. And Rome was smart. They didn't employ their own Roman people to collect taxes. Uh, they would often enlist and try to find locals because they found that locals killed their own kin a little less than they would try to kill Roman soldiers. And at some point in Matthew's life, and, and we don't know the backstory, we don't know exactly what happened in Matthew's life. Um, I, I don't like the chosen kind of presents him as like he's socially awkward and doesn't quite fit in. And we don't know. But he could not find, ultimately, a spot in the story of God that was hopeful enough for him and sold out his own people because the story of Rome should maybe offered just better pay, better opportunity. There was something there that he was willing to be kind of left behind by his people, looked at as an outcast, and sell out his own people for the story that Rome would tell. And I would love to see the moment where Jesus is walking along the shoreline with all these new disciples from Bethsaida, a bunch of fishermen, and he's like, hey, Matthew, come be my disciple. I'm sure they're all like, I don't know about this one, Jesus. And, uh, but this is Matthew's story. 
Matthew's story was someone who was so on the margins and so cast out of God's story of what God was doing to redeem his people and sold out his own people that, that this Jesus came along. God himself in flesh and said, no, Matthew, you have a place in my kingdom and invited him in. And all the people that didn't think they had chances anymore and all the people who didn't, Matthew will look at those parts of God's story and say, no, that's not how history is told. And it includes Canaanite women and it includes Moabite women and it includes the darkest points of the storyline. And Matthew starts with his story. And it is a genealogy that in some ways is expected. It's Abraham and David and it's part of the tribe of Judah and all that's in there. But it will go on to highlight the Babylonian captivity. So it would include not only King David, but Babylon. It would include not only Abraham, but Tamar. Not only Solomon, but every non-Jewish woman in Jesus' lineage. As if to say God was there in Babylon. As much as he was in David's kingdom. God was there with Rahab. God was there doing a work. And Matthew was inviting us, saying, I've spent years following this Jesus. And let me tell you something I've learned along the way. There's nowhere that God won't go. And there's nobody that God won't call. Christmas is for everyone. It's essential. It's what Matthew's doing in his very intro. Matthew's speaking of a new king and a new kingdom that Jesus is establishing. And all are welcomed. The outsider, the rejected, it's open to all who want to participate in what God's doing. And we will find, if we follow Matthew, that people who shouldn't belong are the people who do belong. And people who are devoted and religious and sort of leading are the people who are supposed to have it all together are the people that sometimes don't have it and miss him. The people who are supposed to be in are out, and those who are supposed to be out are in. It's the lens of which Matthew sees the world of how he followed Jesus. And he's a Jew writing to Jews. In some ways, he's critiquing his own people. They are the religious people. They are you and me at times. That Jesus or that Matthew will go, hey, let's make sure we don't miss. Jesus. So Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Oh, and if you guys don't listen to uh, Behold the Lamb, which is Andrew Peterson's wonderful Christmas like performance, he literally does a song of the genealogies, uh, which is unique in and of itself. Uh, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, uh, Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. Once again, Matthew is not hiding Israel's worst parts of its history. It doesn't need to include it. But also, that once again, this has actually been 14. This is a pivot point number for him. As if Matthew was saying, this was a significant point in history, and God was there. The bringing about the Messiah. And they even thought that the lineage was going to be killed off. They thought that the king was taken away, and this lineage is going to die, but God preserves a line. After the deportation of Babylon, uh, Jeconiah is the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of uh, Abiyad. Abiyad, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azar. Azar, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Uh, Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph. And the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Once again, we get the introduction of a woman. Now we post-Christmas story, understand why we get the introduction of a woman. But that story hasn't been told yet. And so it ends with 
Jacob, who is not listed as the father of Jesus. <laughs> it's like we automatically think that the storyline particularly just goes to, it's just Joseph, who's the husband of Mary, who Mary is the one who gave birth to this boy that I'm going to tell you about. In a patriarchal world, this is not actually connecting the bloodline. <laughs> we get the word father, 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 father. And then by Jesus, it's left out. So once again, Matthew's doing a terrible, terrible job of doing a Jewish genealogy. So all the generations of Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And for the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. And there's all sorts of things with numbers. We'll deal with them as we go through Matthew, because Jewish people use numbers in a very important way. Uh, 14, I mean, there's all sorts of theories of here and of how Matthew does it here. Um, it's why there's three groups of like two sevens, because 14 isn't the most significant in Jewish thinking, but seven is. So why are there two sevens, two sevens, and then two sevens? No one knows, totally. Seven certainly represents like a fullness of time. That's why the week is seven days. Um, so I think Matthew is pointing out, hey, there was a significant fullness of time from Abraham to David. There was a significant fullness of time from David to the Babylonian captivity. There's a significant fullness of time now. We are in a pivot point in history at this time that Jesus will be born. And so what we see in Matthew is this Jesus, a constant theme of the unexpected being drawn inside and the ones everyone thought were insiders left outside. And we will see right from the get-go, a pregnant virgin, Babylonian wise men, fishermen, those who are poor, those who mourn, those who are meek, are considered blessed, lepers, Roman centurions, the sick, demoniacs, Canaanite women, paralytics, a hemorrhaging woman, the blind, the mute, the persecuted, the Gentiles, the tax collector, all become the insiders in the story. And the Pharisees, the obedient religious leaders, the Sadducees, the temple leadership, the scribes who know their Torah front and back, those who do a lot of practices of obedience for the sake of show, religious sort of triangle of education in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, all of these people are sort of treated as, you're going to miss it if you don't see what God is doing. So whoever said genealogies were boring, right? I hope the next time you read the opening of Matthew, you're like, man, this genealogy is so good. And at the season where Christmas movies and everything else are out, I always find it interesting that the main character is always like, or one of the periphery main characters. It's, it's a Grinch. It's, it's Scrooge. It's Buddy the Elf's dad, right? All these people who don't have a spot, who are on the outside because of attitudes of their own, because of things that happen in their lives for whatever reason. And only you know the kind of year you've had only you know the kind of season you're in. And maybe you think Advent's just not for you. But does anyone remember like the last line of the Christmas carol? Anybody? Yeah. God bless us. Everyone. And it's this invitation, I think, in. That the favor of God has come in the form of himself. And if you're walking in sin and darkness and rebellion and all the things, this year's, maybe you feel this year's Advent is not going to go down as one of your greatest Advents. If anything, it might go down as one of your worst. I think the invitation for Matthew right from the start is Advent is for everyone. I don't care how bad your year is. I don't care if your year feels like a Babylonian captivity where 
man, everything has gone wrong because of just mistakes and decisions and sins and stuff you've made. Jesus didn't come for everyone who had it figured out. One of my favorite Christmas songs is um, a song called Infant Holy, Infant Lowly. And it's not like super popular, but I I love it. Um, And it says, flocks are sleeping, shepherds keeping, vigil till the morning new. Saw the glory, heard the story, tidings of a gospel true. Thus, so there was all the mess, thus rejoicing, free from sorrow, praises voicing, greet the morrow, Christ the babe. Was Christ the babe was born for you? And uh, I think too many of us don't always feel that way. We give assent to the fact that God loves us. Yeah, God loves me. But we don't feel like God likes us. <laughs> the very message of Christmas was that. That God is always doing a work to bring those that often feel the least lovable or often feel like uh, there's, there's, there's no hope it's as if Emmanuel, God with us, was saying, no, there's hope. God so loved that he came. So I think this final application, the first is that God is no less present in our disastrous chapters as he is in our, victory. our, our victories. I think we like to think that he's removed from the low moments. <clears throat> but he is just as present in our shame as he is in our victories. He is not ashamed of our shame. He's not ashamed of Israel's shame. The very bringing about of the Messiah involved the Babylonian captivity. He scorns the shame, and he is present. That's like the message of Ezekiel. Hey, guess what? You guys are going east into Babylon? Oh, Mom, I've got a, a throne that has wheels and can go east too. Like, it's crazy. But it's a message for them saying, I'm present with you guys. Second is that Christ is for everyone, and there's no one who is not invited to be a part of the Messianic line. What makes you a child of Abraham, which is where Matthew starts with the storyline, but according to Galatians, what makes you a child of Abraham, what makes you want to be, or what makes you a part of the family is faith. That's it. There's no bloodline, there's no lineage that you have to worry about other than Jesus as your big brother. That's it. By trusting in the God of the universe. It's not by doing certain acts, it's not by cleaning up all your mess, but by believing that God has done a tremendous work in dealing with sin on a cross and that he is for you. That is how you become part of the Abrahamic bloodline through Jesus. And lastly, we, like Matthew, also bring that good news to the world. We will see time and time again in Jesus' parables that he just wants to invite everyone to the party. And then he calls us to go do that. He says, hey, go out through the cities and towns. Invite the people. Invite those people. And if they turn you down, hey, find anyone. People on the margins, people that are hurting. Invite them to the banquet. And that's what we get to do. You're thirsty? Ah, come. There's one who has plenty of water. You're hungry? Ah, come. Who's like living bread. Come to the party. Pharisees, hey, 
I know, I know the little brother who sold his father's stuff left. I know this is from Luke, but still. Um, sold all of his father's stuff, left the family, and is back. Hey, Pharisees, you're invited too. Come, join the party. And so in this beautiful genealogy, we see so much of what I think Matthew will be after as he continues writing his story of the kind of Jesus we have, the kind of work that he has done in Matthew's life to take this tax collector and bring him into the fold of the story that God was unfolding through Jesus. And it's good news to you and I. So no matter what mess we are in, no matter what baggage of our past we have, no matter how rough this week, this month, this year has been, that God is present, God can redeem it, and that no one is excluded from the story of God by faith. That faith alone is all we need. Um, and so we do come for this table in some ways, I understand theologies that want to fence it and stuff like that. And because at the end of the day, like this is a table of invitation. Like it's a table with a public pronouncement of going, I am not okay. And I'm glad that my Savior is. <laughs> I am struggling. And I'm glad my Savior is perfect. And so it's a coming to the table that's just a public declaration of that fact. And we come and take place, but yeah, which is a point to Jesus' death more than his incarnation in some ways, but um, a reminder that Jesus sat down with a bunch of disciples from all over the map. I mean, you got to imagine the zealot was not so happy with Matthew or Simon sitting down at the table with him. Um, or he's the zealot. But with Matthew or... Um, some of the, the, the Greek-named guys sitting down. They were the people who sold out. And Matthew probably has taken money from a few of those fishermen. Yet they find at the table invitation because Jesus is the center, not their worldviews and differences. And so when you come to this table, that's what we're celebrating, that Jesus took upon himself our sin. And it's a level playing field at the cross for prostitutes, for Moabites, for kings who commit atrocious acts, for a whole bunch of people who worshipped all sorts of different things and ended up in captivity, for somebody that wanted to persecute the church and was killing Christians left and right, for those of us who, gosh, probably haven't had a quiet time in a year, for those of us who lusted after who knows what over the last few weeks. Those of us who gossip and are angry and have done terrible things to spouses or family or live in unforgiveness, this table is for you to come and experience the grace of Jesus in the midst of the broken world. And so let me help set it up.